Welcome to Mind Rewind, a voyage through mental health journeys by those with the courage and desire to share their experiences with you. Through the insight and lived experience of others, you may find the tools and strategies that could benefit you and the strength to reach out for support. Listen and you'll hear messages of hope and that there is no obstacle that cannot be overcome when there is a willingness and bravery to tackle your challenges. Just a warning that some of the content of this story may be confronting for some listeners. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, speak with someone today. Please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome to Mind Rewind. I'm Jack Payne and today I am lucky enough to have the lovely Aisha join me to talk about her mental health journey. She's very young, so that journey <laughs> can't have happened too long ago, but I'm going to be really curious to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Thanks for giving up your time to talk oh, to me thank today. Thank you for having me. really appreciate oh, it. I'm really <laughs> grateful. Maybe a ni- what might be a nice place to start mm-hmm. is, to, is to understand where you're at today because mm. I think if we, if we understand where you're at today, then we go into the, the history and the things, the obstacles sure. and challenges that you've had. It fits together really nicely that we understand, wow, you know, this is where you're at, mm. but this is what you were up against mm. and have come through to actually get there. Yeah. So rather than doing a timeline, yeah. let's kind of work <laughs> from now and then, and then have a look at history. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that's a really nice way to do it. So what do you do with yourself now? Where are you, where are you located? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to give specifics, but a rough idea. <laughs> yeah. So I'm currently living in Wollongong. I'm studying my master's. I work as a relationship and sex therapist, mainly with queer youth. That's something that I'm really passionate oh, about. Interesting. Yeah. So, what else is very interesting about me? I guess I've got a sphinx. I'm like obsessed with cats. One I have those little things with no fur. No fur. <laughs> She's a little monkey. She's They're probably the rat. only ones I'd like because I don't. They wouldn't shed all over my house. But it's so great. It is so great. I've had no fluffy maintenance. cats and. Your furniture is ruined. So proud of cat mom. Proud <laughs> cat mom. I do a lot of sports. So I rock climb. I pole dance. You're yeah. the second person today. Can you believe it? And it is barely lunchtime that's told me they're pole dancers. So I don't know what's going on amazing. in the pole dance world. It's such an athletic sport. And for me, pole dancing and rock climbing, there's a lot of interchangeability in terms of like the muscle groups and things like that. Okay, interesting. So tend to be good at one, tend to be good at the other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> well, I'm going to be interesting to hear how those things fit in with you maintaining really good mental health because yes. I'm sure they play a part in that too. <laughs> Massive. But let me tap into because mm. it's always interesting when I hear that someone else is a therapist. Mm. What took you into the field? Yeah, so during high school I had a really challenging time with my mental health and I actually had a really horrible experience entering therapy for the first time. <gasps> Yeah, they lied a lot. They weren't very clear about limits of confidentiality and they weren't transparent with that process of when they had to report to my parents or to the school and things like that. Okay. Um, They kind of just lied to me and then fax was at my house that evening, that same day that I went to that therapist. Okay, you know what? We need to talk about that because if we've got young people listening, um, one of the things that I always stress in my own practice because I think it's – fundamental to the young person getting the very best outcome for Mm. themselves is that finding the fit with Mm. the right therapist Mm. is arguably the most important part of the process. The most, absolutely. And and sometimes it won't be the Mm. first therapist, but also that therapy should provide you with certain things Mm. and and some of those things are protection in some ways of being really transparent and clear about what that process looks like, including confidentiality. Absolutely. And interestingly, in my own counselling agreement, because I see 
a lot of young people mm. and they invariably want to be in there without a parent. Mm. I keep my confidentiality separate from my counselling agreement mm. so I can specifically talk about what it means Yeah, because I think the process mm. can't give the young person what they need if they yeah. don't understand what confidentiality Absolutely. looks like. So, so give me an idea. Sorry, yeah. I'm speaking too much now. But <laughs> give me an idea of what your experience was like because I think it's yeah. really important to understand and it might guide a young person yeah. to ask specific questions yeah. should they choose to go into therapy. For sure. So basically I was told, so what happened for me is I had a bit of a mental breakdown in class. Like I just started at bawling school. My, at school like during class. Okay, what year? I was in year 11. Okay, so you're about 16, 17. Yeah, yeah. and they were like, whoa. <laughs> had there been a builder? For me personally, yes, but in terms of anybody else, outside of me or my family knowing no and they sent me to the school counselor and it's the first time I've ever been like had to talk to somebody okay and they were like you can tell us anything and I the very first thing I said was will you tell my mom and they're like no and this was in the school environment so we'll be really you know specific about that this was a school counselor that you saw yeah who and you didn't have to sign anything, and they didn't have any My conversation didn't with you have about to sign confidentiality. Anything. No. Okay, it's interesting. And they were just like, "Tell me everything," and because I was already in such an emotionally really intense space, I just verbal vomited <laughs> everything which needed to happen. And when I look back in hindsight, I can really understand that this person was doing their job. Mandatory reporting is really important, it but is. I think I was just really disappointed with the outcome of how that went and also that I wasn't told that there were limits to my confidentiality that my parents would have to know certain things if I did bring them up that I couldn't just have a safe person and it made therapy feel like a very unsafe environment for me after and took quite some time and it's really disappointing to have that kind of first experience can I ask when because it's true anyone who's listening who might be interested in having therapy the limits of confidentiality yeah. should absolutely be explained to you in the first session. Absolutely. And your therapist should be very clear about yeah. that. Did the school counsellor go and have a conversation with your parents after having a conversation with you? Or did so, you know that they were going to make contact? At the end of the session, they were like, we're going to call your mum. And I was like, uh, okay, don't get my stepdad involved because he was abusing my mum and my myself and my family members. And so I was really scared of the backlash of that. Okay. And they were like, no, 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 it's just going to be a mum. We're just going to talk to her. We're just concerned about your safety. I'm like, that's fine. It's my mum. Like, whatever. That's Okay, I understand that has to happen. Then I come home from school and Fax is sitting in my lounge room talking to my mum and waiting for my stepfather to come home to talk to him as well. And the way that that unfolded, it just led to more abuse. And I was ostracised from my family and being punished for telling other people about what was happening in our home. And I kind of wish somebody maybe could have prepared me for that backlash that I was going to get or told me what the process was once Fax was involved. Um, They suggested a parenting course, which he was never forced to do, and he had been physically and emotionally abusing myself, my siblings, and my mum. And I just basically I paid for it like after that. Yeah. Okay, so you had this experience of opening up for the first Mm -hmm. time and then finding that actually you weren't protected. Yeah. And that, you know, I'm I'm certainly not going to be here to demonise facts, but Mm. a very well-intentioned visit. Absolutely. They were not prepared for what the outcome could be or or were not 
you know, long-sighted enough to be able yeah. to go, you know what, what this may make life more difficult. And mm. this is all transpiring, in, if yeah. uh, what I'm hearing is right, in the space of a day. In this afternoon. Okay. It's school pretty School counselling session during the day at school, come home and... There's facts. Yeah. And then facts leave and mm-hmm. you're left with your mum and stepdad. Yeah. yeah. What, let's take a little step back to mm-hmm. what initially was the trigger for the tears in class. Yes. <laughs> Because that's really where it all unlines. I honestly wish I could pinpoint it to a certain thing. So I was quite a high-achieving student. I was in English Advance, English Extension. I did all like the community sort of subjects, like kind of guiding myself into a caring profession. Clearly. Um, (laughs) So I definitely had that instinct for a long time. And I think I just felt like I can't keep up. I'm falling behind. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And I just felt so overwhelmed with all these sort of negative thoughts about myself that were being confirmed at home. And so I kind of just felt, well, this just must be the rest of my life. How was it being confirmed at home? Oh, stepfather had a nasty time. That sounds like a little little question, but I know it's loaded. He was very, very good with his words and good in the worst possible way. So he would say things like, I will... I will never physically hurt you, but you're a whore, you're a prostitute, you're this, you're not going to amount to anything, you can't help people, like you're so stupid, how do you think you're going to go in your HSC? And these are things you're hearing every day as, as a young person. And after a certain point, I think you just start believing it because, oh, okay, if, if that's that's the case. And then you have those negative thoughts in school, you're not keeping up, your marks compared to your friends aren't going as well. And you're like, well, this is proof. Suddenly it sounds like the truth. Look at the evidence. It's right in front of me. And I think that's just when I... How, how old were you when stepdad came into your life? Just out of curiosity. Uh, 14. And is biological dad in your world? No. Lots of lots of unknowns with the daddy issues, albeit now, obviously. I've been in therapy very much since I've been 16 years old. Okay. Chop and change a lot of therapists, and I'm in a really good space about it now. But I actually don't know my biological father. Okay. Have you tried to find dad? I have. He actually found me at one point when he was going through divorce with his, I think, now ex-wife. But then he backed out of meeting me and my siblings because okay. it was too much for him. Which I think is kind of kind of fucked up to say to like your firstborn child. Sorry, meeting you is too much for me, and I'm like, what? <laughs> hey, you chose to bring me into the world. So like, I didn't ask to be born. Like yeah. I am here. But even the choosing to be brought into the world, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma in my family. Okay, um, interesting. Well. Can you shed a little bit of a light on that? Yeah. So I'm Cambodian. Both my parents are Cambodian, and my mum came here during the war, the Khmer Rouge, as oh a child. Goodness. Okay. So lots of stuff with that. Absolutely. A lot of cultural stuff of we don't talk about our feelings, we don't talk about our experience. It's very hush hush. But me being a very curious cat, I always wanted to know like what is Understand. our family's history? Yeah. Like how did we come here? Like what happened? And so part of that culture is arranged marriage. And oh. my mum, at the age of fifteen, was in an arranged marriage to my father who was 24 in in Adelaide. These things are happening in Australia and people do not see or do not realise what's happening in those small minority communities because they're so locked in to themselves. Right, they're so boundaried and tightly held that that we're not privy to to what's going on. So mum was married at 15? Yeah, yeah. My grandmother lied on a stat deck saying that she was 17 years old. Wow. How old was mum? When, are you the eldest? I'm the eldest. So how old was mum when you were born? 17. She was a child having a child. But Absolutely. not of her own free will. Okay. Mm. And then 
what happened? You did, they obviously had a couple of kids because she got siblings. Yeah, so me and my brother were born out of that relationship, but it was not a, a happy marriage. It's just tradition, really. So they ended up separating, or rather, actually, my mum ran away. She took me and my brother and, like, fled from Adelaide to, to okay, Sydney. So she got married off and then she found, yeah. it, found her brave. Yeah, <laughs> and from there I've had two stepdads. So I have a brother who's half Greek and I have a little sister who's half Australian. What a family tree. It's a big family tree. Always stressed me out trying to, like, draw it in class. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's clarify then. Which stepdad are we talking about? In My sister's stepdad. Okay. So yeah. that was stepdad at 16. It sounds like there was a lot of emotional abuse. Yes. Yeah. And it's insidious mm. and we don't even realise quite often that it is abuse. Exactly. And I, I never knew it was until someone labelled it for me because he had he had hit me, he'd like slapped me across the face and he would smack me and things like that. And I'm like, well, only this is abuse because these are things that I know are happening and I can feel it and I can remember it and that's what that is. Or it would be like inappropriate touching. So he would like touch me in sexual places where there was never any penetration, but it's classified as sexual touching, right? Yeah, correct. And so I was like, well, that's obviously abuse. Little did I know that all the other stuff, that's the stuff that, that sometimes still flares up for me. I actually really manage the other stuff really well. Yeah, the really obvious, yeah. it's out there, everyone can see it yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's it was the one that got underneath mm. the skin. And nobody knows. No. You know? I think I was in year nine and I told one of my friends, oh, yeah, my stepdad slapped me across the face and called me a bitch. And they're like, you know that he's not allowed to hit you, right? And it blew my mind. I was like, what do you mean? I don't I actually understand. Like, he's done that forever. Isn't that what dads Why do? Why do you think you didn't understand? Do you think that is part of your cultural context, that it's yeah. not, things are not spoken we about? We do not so. talk about things that are outside of the family. I'm actually considered, not in my immediate family, but extended family, a bit of a black sheep. You know, my partner's like German, Australian, and, you know, I'm very Western. And, You've stepped outside. Oh, uh, you're not one of us, and your job in mental health, that's not a real job. You get paid to talk to people. Like, what is that? And so I'm quite different culturally compared to my family. But I like to think that I'm breaking intergenerational trauma. So. Absolutely <laughs> right. I'm with you on that one. I yeah. want to hear that you're doing different. So you went to the school the mm -hmm. school therapist. Mm -hmm. And actually before I go to school therapist, mm. can we just go just go back to mum and yeah. dad? When dad, stepdad, mm. is treating you poorly, mm. you know, where's mum in all that? Mum was also a victim as well. Okay. So it's taken a lot of time because I think for a long time I felt quite abandoned or neglected. How how come you didn't stand up for me? How come you, you did. didn't, you know, do something? Why didn't you leave him? And as I've learned more about domestic violence, it is a lot more complex than just leave. That is the worst thing I think you I agree. could ever Pe say. Pe people do what they can with yeah. what they have and sometimes and, they don't have very much. And my mum's a survivor. She came here as a child from war. It's a victim of war. You know, like she grew up not speaking English and being bullied for being Asian and not speaking the language and she adapted the best that she could and, you know, she's such a role model in my life because she always strives to do best. But I think it's okay that I can say that but also feel hurt by her inaction. Of course. And learning to sit with both feelings and recognise that, well, both of them are true and that's okay. I think, you know, having our having our mature adult yes. head, which can rationalise yes. it and bring in that beautiful rational mm -hmm. mind. But, I, you know, there's still 16-year-old oh. emotional you oh my God, that who, is allowed to feel let yeah, down and disappointed. Absolutely. And I, me and my brother, we used to, like, have fantasies of, like, oh, how are we going to escape? 
how are we going to hurt him so he can't hurt us? And yeah. we would talk all night about how we're going to protect our mom. And in a way, it's it did bring us skill. really close. Yes, it did. And it made me feel, well, I'm not alone, you know. But again, with domestic violence, it's so complex. If he does something, I might step. If he does something, he never did anything wrong. Neither of us did. Like no. But I'd step in to take the abuse. So he wouldn't have to. Protect and then your brother. He would do the same for me. And then it's this it's this bond that is so intense. And we do it for our mum and our mum would do it for us. And it, it's just survival mode. Absolutely. Mm. Mum and dad, mum and stepdad still together? No. No. Okay. So she did eventually find the courage to. Yeah. She moved into state. And he was stalking my mum and myself. Like, he would rock up at my house in Wollongong. He lives in Sydney. And be like, you can't take my kids away from me, this, that, blah, blah. Turns out he was actually diagnosed with bipolar 1. Oh, and okay. um, he had a really long history. He was struggling with drugs as well. And I think just at a certain point in his drug use, it really and – it, and, and it really helped actually learning about his diagnosis because working in the mental health field, I was like, oh, that's what's going on. That makes sense. He was unmedicated his entire life, had done so many bad drugs his entire life, to push that over the edge. Just helps to make meaning, I think, to, I think go, to so. go, you know, we're not defending him when, no. we, when we kind of unravel his story. Yeah. But, but sometimes I think we're quick to judge that people are bad people. But mm. yeah, almost everybody who's considered a bad person has their own story. And yeah. I think when we can make meaning of somebody mm-hmm. else's story, it makes it easier for mm. us to bear yeah. the things that we've had to, yeah. to experience. For sure. So school counsellor fact-sitting yeah. in the lounge room, <laughs> then what? Oh, my gosh. Well, I was ostracised from my immediate family, so I actually was given a new set of rules where I wasn't allowed to talk to my siblings. I wasn't allowed to talk to my mum. I was only allowed to be in my room. Who gave you those rules? Stepfather. So you were not allowed to interact with the other members of your family. Yeah. How on earth does that happen in a household? How do you do that? Well, I was basically locked in my bedroom and I, I actually couldn't leave. So locked? Locked. Like the door We're talking locked. a key? Yeah. Okay. I had all my technology taken away from me so I couldn't talk to anybody and I was basically only allowed to come out to go to school and then I'd return straight to my room. That lasted for a while and then... What's a while? Because I'm going, you're a prisoner in your own yeah, home. basically, and I can't even ask for help. I can't no. even turn to my well, mum. probably terrified. Oh, well, I know. I knew what was going to happen if I broke those rules. And it's, and it's not just your safety you're concerned about, it's everyone else's. Absolutely. And it was a really, really scary time. And that's why I laughed that they suggested that he... Take a parenting, Go to parenting class. courses. Because that's going to fix, that's going to fix everything. And with my school counsellor, we were talking about options because I told her, I'm getting locked in my room. So you did go back to that counsellor when you went to school. Yeah. Okay. How did you, well, repair the rupture? Let's call it yeah. that. Because I imagine that there was a rupture when yeah. you felt betrayed by her. Absolutely. I didn't have a choice. Okay. Because the, I couldn't talk to my mum. I then, I, we don't have extended family in Sydney. All of my extended family are all across Australia. Mm-hmm. So, and I didn't have technology, so I couldn't even call yeah. anybody. So I was like, well, school's the only place that I can actually tell someone what is happening. This lady really pissed me off. But I, I guess if they, if they can get facts to rock up at my house, maybe they can actually make something good happen. And so I kind of took that courage and was like, hey, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm so stuck, right? Did- did that school counsellor understand that this was an outcome of a train that was set in motion by you, mm. you know, being brave and going to her the first time? Mm. 
and then her doing, you know, mm. due diligence, she's required to report if she yeah, thinks sure. it sits in within the mandatory mm. reporting categories. Mm. But that actually this is what happened mm. as a result. I don't think she fully understood, but I think she also did like towards the end because the op- one of the options that I was given because they were like, well, we can move you back to Adelaide. I'm like, no. <laughs> All my friends and my family yeah. here, I'm not about to do that. So one of the options that she gave me was like, well, we can put you in government housing. Okay. You would be able to emancipate yourself from your parents yeah. and then you would be able to be put in government housing, but you would have to have a job and you would have to work and you'd have to try and, you know, take care of yourself and financially, whatever, whatever. I asked, well, can I take my brother at least with me? And they said no. Okay. You'd have to go by yourself. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that then. We were prepared to do it. Well, I didn't want to leave him. No. You know? And in my brain at the time, I was like, well, my mum's an adult. I understand that things are really messed up for her, but she can sort herself She's a big out. Girl. You know? Yeah. But my brother, absolutely not. I'm not about to leave him there to be the only sort of punching bag. You know? I'm not about to do that to him. So I didn't. You stayed at home. Stayed at home. Things. Uh, relatively got better, I suppose. You're very good at lying. You're very good at masking. You're very good at being deceptive, <laughs> I suppose, but out of necessity to keep yourself safe. What about your friends? Because, mm. you know, we we both know at that kind of oh, age, yeah. friends are incredibly important. Absolutely. You've got all this big stuff going mm. on. I mean, it, it, it would be really obvious to any teenage mm-hmm. friend mm-hmm. if there's no communication happening on yeah. technology. Yeah. <laughs> So what role were they playing or did you mm. have to kind of almost retreat from them to be able to survive it? Yeah. Well, I wasn't al- allowed to spend time with them, but I did anyway because well, you break sure. the rules at that age. you're going to. That's just natural. Yep. <laughs> All of my friends knew. My friends knew a lot and some of them told their parents and so I was able to stay with some friends and their parents for like periods and chunks oh, okay. of time. Okay, so a bit of couch surfing. Yeah, a bit of couch surfing, which was good, but then – I'd come back home and it would be... Nothing's changed. Yeah. And even though I had a break, no one else got a break. And I think that guilt really set in pretty hard for me. Wow, I'm getting better. I'm safe. But look what's happening to my family. And I feel like it's almost like a, well, I don't deserve that safety then if they don't have it either. Like a, akin to a survivor's guilt. Yeah. You know, you know I've, I've got a way out or mm. I've got some respite mm-hmm. that I can take every now and again, mm. but then worrying for your brother. Yeah, for sure. So my friends were probably the only thing that kept me alive during that time. You know, just being able to be a kid and do dumb stuff. That being said, some dumb stuff, I got into like stealing and things and just doing naughty things. Oh, can you tell us a bit more? Yeah. I love the naughty things. I know they're not great. I'm not condoning it. <laughs> but I'm always curious as to, yeah. you know, someone who is clearly really level-headed, a really yeah. intelligent girl. <laughs> For all those other young people out there, mm. we, you know, in the adolescent years, we all yeah. do dumb stuff. What yeah. was your dumb stuff? I love to steal. I love stealing. And what did you steal? Makeup, clothes, jewellery, just little things. But it made me feel like I was in control. Ah. And that was addictive. Okay. And that I was going to be like, a fuck you, do authority. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like, you know, you can't stop me. It was definitely, when I look back, just a complete consequence of what was happening in my world where I had no control. But if I decide to steal a lipstick and I get away with it, oh, my gosh, you're powerful. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah. When all your power's being stripped in every other environment that you're in. Exactly. Did you get caught? I actually never got caught. <laughs> oh, I was waiting God. for the I got caught no, story. I never got caught and it and it took me ages to realise that this is not a healthy coping mechanism. Okay, so you realised it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Did was, you do it with other people or you did it on your own? Did it on my own, sometimes other people. Was it addictive? A little bit. It, the, it wasn't. I never cared for the stuff. No, the stuff actually was... didn't matter at all. It could be a chocolate bar or it could be a really expensive perfume and it didn't really matter, but it was that feeling of I'm getting away with something that I shouldn't. I'm in control of this situation and it, it made me feel like I could do what I wanted to do. I have choice. I have power. And... For me at that time, that was quite addictive because I didn't have it anywhere else. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, so we're, we're not doing that anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> and there were little items. Yes, yeah. No, I wouldn't I wouldn't really recommend it, but I can see why. why. I can see why that was a consequence of what was going on. So you had your friends. Mm -hmm. You had your petty shoplifting. Yes. <laughs> and did you end up with good therapy? Eventually. Tell, so, tell me about that journey because it's often it's often hard to find. Yeah, it took me a really long time. So for a long time, I just thought that like my school or my uni would have the best sort of <laughs> mental health support, and I kind of found that I didn't really wasn't a fit for you. Not for me. And realizing that I'm bisexual, it became very important that I had a therapist who understood the LGBTQIA plus community. I had a therapist once ask me, "What is that?" And I instantly oh, was sorry, like, my jaw has fallen to the No, floor. I was like, oh, lady, I'm not telling you shit. I'm not telling you anything. I'm not going to give away my exact age, but yeah. I am a lot older than you. <laughs> and I am very au okay with, you know, what, what that yeah. would mean. And, and interestingly, I would argue, you know, just as anecdotally that my client base, who is predominantly, mm -hmm. you know, adolescents and young mm -hmm. adults, I would say about 75% of them identify as bisexual. So I, it's, We're the biggest community in I the agree, community. I agree. <laughs> the world is your oyster, quite literally. So yeah. I'm astonished that someone would yeah. not, not kind of understand I, it. I, I literally, my brain struggles. Like, it's your job. You specialise working with young people. Yeah, to, like, to understand what, the, what it feels yeah. like in their world, even though we're removed, far removed from it. But, like, even knowing about sexuality, I sure. feel like that's just a basic. Like, I've got my – so working myself, I work with teens. They know things about sexuality that I don't even know, and I'm studying my master's on it. Oh, the things I learned. Oh, my gosh. It's fabulous. It's so great. And I'm like, wow, these young people these days are so brave to be themselves and they so are. courageous and it's so beautiful to see – when did you identify as bisexual? When when did you kind of have that realisation that, yeah. you know what, I'm just, I, I'm attracted to bisexuals? So I <laughs> I had this moment with my, I had a really close to me and my friend, we were best friends, and I, I always would say, like, I love you, yep. you know, because that's it's your that's best girls friend, do. you know, and you, you cuddle in bed and you do all these things, you hang out all the time, and then it just occurred to me, wait, do I <laughs> do I just love you like a friend or do I want to sleep with you? Yeah. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I, I want to sleep, sleep, sleep with you. And that was kind of my awakening as well, which is beautiful because I don't think I don't think I would have made it through that time in my life without that best friend. And I think just because of everything that was happening, we became so close and I could be so vulnerable and I felt so safe. 
And so they were a really big part in me realising myself. Yeah. Okay, so you've got this beautiful best friend. Mm -hmm. Mm Self-awareness is kind of growing in Mm -hmm. you. You have a a therapist who probably didn't quite quite know as much (laughs) as she perhaps should have working in that area. Mm. When did you come to good therapy? So I had tried so many different therapists over the years now. I've been working with my current therapist for the last three years. What makes that therapist a good fit? Because, and I want to, you know, yeah. if, if there are young people listening, what is crucial to understand is yeah. finding that fit is mm. incredibly important, mm. but it also can be, it can be time consuming and there can yes. be wait lists. Yes. And all those <laughs> difficult things that come with it. Mm. And it's not a one hit wonder. Absolutely. But if you find the right fit, how mm. powerful and profound that can be. Yeah. And I guess that's your story. You've been with this person yeah. now for three years. Why? So it was the first thing that I noticed was his specialities. Okay. That was it. So that's he, a, it's a male. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting mm. because I was like, I hate men. Men are scary and aggressive. And so it was actually a big step for me to see a male therapist and be vulnerable with a man. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking you've had a father who's essentially abandoned or rejected you and mm-hmm. then you've had a stepfather who's treated yeah. you really poorly yeah. and then you go and find a male therapist. Yeah. Wow. Yes. <laughs> that, that your healing sits in that yeah. space. But I think for me I actually needed a male figure and mm-hmm. I think for me it is actually my therapist. So he specialises in EMDR. Okay. So Tell us a little more about that because even yeah. I'm going to admit yeah. I, I'm not all over it. Okay. I mean, I obviously understand the basics, sure. but, but tell me what it's like to experience it. Yeah. So I'm actually trained in it professionally. Okay. After I did it as a client, I was like, oh my God, it changed my life. I need to, I need to learn about this thing, this magic wow. thing. So basically what I really like about EMDR is it just allows me, there's a lot of, because I have a diagnosis of complex PTSD and depression. I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> and so going through those memories and distancing myself and making them hard to recall, I stopped having nightmares. I stopped having night terrors. My flashbacks, I stopped having them as well. So this is what the EMDR, Yeah. actually this is the outcome for you. And what is the process? What does it look like? Yeah, so I see my therapist online and so basically I watch a light bar that goes across the screen like this while I process the memory like of a particular negative experience with that negative belief and we kind of, it kind of, it gets cloudy. It gets fuzzy. So my, I did a EMDR session. My very first one was about not knowing my father because that was just a big so thing. So painful. Yeah. And even I think, how old am I now? I'm about to be 26 next week. So probably in my early 20s, starting therapy with this person being like, I actually haven't dived into any of this stuff. I had been doing CBT. I had been doing DBT skills. I've been doing all this thought stuff. But my feelings never changed. Okay, that's a really important differentiation. Yeah. yeah. And so with EMDR, I had that emotional change. I had that, it's okay that I don't know my dad. And quite honestly, I actually don't want anything to do with him. He's a stranger in my life. And if I met him, he's never going to meet the expectations that I would have had anyway. But it allowed me to actually believe that and not just so logically think that. you shifted, yeah. which arguably. Yeah shifted the emotion absolutely it was a okay how interesting yeah how how many sessions did it take would you say on what kind of time frame yeah so we had very specific memories that we were targeting Mm -hmm. and so each specific memory probably was about one session okay 
Yeah, and there's probably a handful of them, Mm -hmm. but it really did change my life. Do you have to go back over them? Is there like a reinforcement Mm -hmm. process or or you just, you know, it's a one-shot? Yeah, so it really depends. Um, With EMDR, if you're looking at the full process, you go back, so you go over the memories, Mm -hmm. you process the memories, and then you do something that's called future templating, where Uh it's like basically like mental movies of how you would behave in those certain situations. And so that kind of reinforces the learning that you've done. Because you also instill a positive belief. So one for me, I always felt unsafe, always. Always felt like there's danger around the corner. My current partner, I made him put security cameras all around our house. <laughs> and I was like, give me the tablet. I want to be able to watch the cameras in the house. And it was really hard. Like I actually couldn't sleep in a dark room for okay. years. Like I'm talking maybe only the last like three years can I sleep in a dark room? I always have to have the door open and a hallway light on or it was very much like a safety yeah, thing. Yeah, the world's unsafe. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of my trauma happened at night, so there's just a lot of things in my brain that's like, the nighttime is dangerous. Yeah. And EMDR really helped with that. Like, I can sleep in a pitch black room. Actually realise you get such great sleep. <laughs> that you can sleep really yeah. well. It's actually a thing. Yeah, I, I was just convinced that, like, oh, my, because I had a lot of sleep anxiety. I always used to be like, if I fall asleep, something bad's going to happen. If I fall asleep, something's going to, someone's going to break in or something's going to, and I don't have any Any of that that anymore. Yeah. So my therapist, I credit him a lot to the progress that I've made, but I also recognize that therapy happens outside of the room. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and look, I say that to every client, especially Mm -hmm. the ones who get a little bit stuck when I go, you know what? It's actually what we talk about in here is Mm -hmm. really important, Mm -hmm. but change needs action and it is actually what you do when you walk outside the door that will take you on a different path yeah not just the talking yeah so i think think that's a really a really important thing to stress yeah because active in it i was convinced that if i talk about all these horrible things magically they're not going to hurt me anymore right (laughs) uh no No. that is not how that works (laughs) um so yeah it took a long time for me to even feel ready for the action I think for a long time I enjoyed it isn't the right word, but I was so comfortable being depressed and in the depths of that depression. Oh, I'm not going to let you get away without talking about that. <laughs> Tell me more about that because I, I would agree that people get something mm-hmm. out of it sometimes Absolutely. which makes it harder for them mm-hmm. to pull themselves out. Mm-hmm. So tell me what you got out of your depression. Yeah, so being in that space, it made it feel like, well, all these horrible things happen to you, so it's okay to feel this way. And because you don't know anything different, why would you want to feel any other way? You only know thoughts of suicide. You only know feeling like a big piece of shit. It was so hard for me to go, actually, I don't want this. I don't believe it. If other people can see that that's not the case, maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe they're lying to me, but I need to find out. And also it was just the years of brainwashing is not the right word, but just years of that emotional abuse that I was like, well, he was right. Look at me. I mean, I'm depressed. I can't study. I can't, I'm not doing anything right with my life. And I just felt like, well, if this is it, then I just have to stay here and it's comfortable here. I know what's here. The familiar. Mm. It's often the way that people, not that it's, it's not serving them well, no. But it's what they know, and I know how to operate yeah. in in this space, even though mm-hmm. it's depriving me, mm-hmm. or you know, I'm avoiding mm. all this other stuff that's out there and that could help me. So it's a really interesting point to make that sometimes we stay in it because it's familiar, yeah. And I know how to operate within mm. it. And I, I never dreamed of my life and how I feel now. I didn't even think it was possible. 
Really? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't actually believe that I would be alive at this time in my life. So I'm in a long-term relationship. It'll be six years this year. I never saw myself getting married, never saw myself having kids, never saw myself finding a fulfilling career. Like I was convinced that that's just, that's not on the cards of people like me. I could never achieve that. I could never have that. So there were no goals. No. And I I struggled a lot with my career choices because of that. Mm. I finished high school and then I was like, Oh, what am I going to do now? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't lost. think I didn't think I was going to get here, and so I found myself delving into partying and drugs and all this this sort of filler okay. stuff. Tell me about that. What was that yeah. kind of world like, and did that, you know, play some sort of role for yeah. you too? It it kept me stuck. It was an escape. Mm-hmm. So I think in the period of times, those weekends, it was like this break from all this negative noise that I was running around with all the time. So I did think that when I look at my life, I don't think I would have gotten to where I am now without saying goodbye to that lifestyle mm-hmm. because it was a different lifestyle to the one that I had. Very. Right? So that means I can make it different again. Okay. And so it was hard because I think it's so enticing to just escape, just to numb. And it felt great. At the time. In the moment. Yeah. And now, Did it feel so great the next day? Absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. And my therapist at the time, I was seeing one from the university. We did so much harm minimization stuff. And I think that was really helpful that I felt like I could tell them. I always thought I was going to get into trouble. Ah, so, okay. Well, especially given your kind of very yeah. early experiences as well. So tell us about that. So I was telling my therapist, I was like, hey. <laughs> I'm, this is what I got up to I'm, on I'm Saturday I'm getting up night. to no good on the weekend. I was taking a lot of MDMA and smoking a lot of marijuana and they were like, okay, well, how can we make this the safest it can be? And I was like, whoa, that's an option. I don't have to go. And it also allowed me to be like, I'm not a bad person for doing that. And her seeing me and going, okay, that's how you're coping. How can we make this as safe as humanly possible? How can we replace that with something else? It allowed me to, someone was giving me choice. They weren't telling me, no, you can't do drugs because if someone told me at that time, I would have been like, well, fuck you. <laughs> well, it just would have taken you back to your yeah. household. It would have felt the same. Exactly. People, so uh, really lovely that you had that experience yeah. of, you know, look, we're not condoning it, but mm-hmm. you're going to do what you're going to do. Yeah. So how do we keep that as safe as possible, which I think is a really, you know, it's a helpful approach with young people yeah. for sure. Yeah. So you made your own choice that mm-hmm. actually this is not serving me well. Yeah. Is it hard to give it all up? It was, but I think it was probably the best decision that I ever made. What did you replace it with? Or did you have Whoa. to, you know, come to a conscious mm. decision that, you know what, if I'm not going to be doing that on Saturday night mm-hmm. or over the weekend, I'm going to have to put something else in there? Yeah, it was actually my goals. Late at night, I was up with my partner, my current partner, and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing with my career. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I don't know what to study because I had dropped out of my degree at that point. Okay. Yeah, so I did two years of psych and then I was like, this is cold. I don't want to do it. So I kind of <laughs> – Yeah, I know. It is, it is cold. It's, I'm going to agree with you on that stats. one. It's the stats. It's the stats and stats. it's the, you know, I was like, oh, this isn't helping people. What, what is this? We do um, have to be able to read research. Yes, like. we do, which I recognise now. But at the time with all the drugs, I don't think I was thinking very no, you clearly. Probably not. And then he was like, oh, you know, you talk to your friends a lot about their sex lives and their relationships. And I was like, yeah, but that's just, you know, that's just girls. Like we just, we just talk about everything. And then he was kind of like, but you talk about everything. Like you do not, you're not phased by anything. And I was like, well, I'm not going to about to kink shame my friends. Like if they're having a good time and they're doing it safely, like I'm here for it. Absolutely. And then he was like, well, that's a job. 
And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. And, uh, <laughs> yes, it is. And that's where I'm now. And I think that random discussion, it, it really changed the trajectory of everything because I was like, well, if that's the person I want to be, if I want to be a sex therapist, if I want to be helping people in that space, I can't be getting up to no good on a Saturday night. I have to be living aligned with my new values of the life that I want. And that's what really shifted, I think, me allowing to leave that life behind because I was about to start a new one. I love that in that kind of scenario there that you chose it. Mm. You weren't doing it because someone told you Mm. you should and you weren't doing it to please someone in a Mm. relationship or whatever. You came to your own decision that my value structure that I really want to live doesn't align with that. Mm. So I need to do it, which I think is really interesting. And in all all the stories that I'm hearing, when people have gotten to a point where they've made changes, Mm. it's of their own volition Yeah, is what fundamentally comes through. No one can make you do it. You've actually (laughs) got to decide it's what Mm -hmm. you want. Yeah. If you want change. Absolutely. Which is a really, you know, it's a powerful message. You've got to be ready mm. and open for it. And it's not easy. No, you know, I, I still sometimes struggle with this concept of what I call baby therapist, <laughs> where I'm like, ah, oh, imposter syndrome sets in and I'm a little baby a- therapist. Absolutely. Honey, I'm in my 50s. Yeah. <laughs> and I still think of myself as baby therapist occasionally. Um, so, you know what, that that probably never leaves no, in, in some but ways. I think it's a good thing. I think it makes me curious because I'm like, oh, well, I actually don't know everything. But I want to. I want to know more. I want to know your story. I couldn't possibly know. And so, yeah, I found myself walking down this path, doing my counselling degree, now doing my master's and specialising in sex therapy. And I have a very big interest working with victims of sexual assault because of my similar experience. And I know that place and I know that sometimes lived experience is so powerful. Like my therapist, he's bisexual, and mm-hmm. that was something that I was like, "Yep, you're part of the queer community. I want yep, you. You're on my team." That's the connect was the connection for you. Yeah. yeah. On top of the fact that he talks to me like a real person, you know, I've had therapists who are very cold, or I I kind of call them like interrogators. <laughs> you know, they they just like so like prim and proper asking you questions. It's like, are you a police officer? Like, what is this situation? Like, I'm so confused. I know, and I think with young people as well. That's you know, and and. You would know just mm. with your studies that we we kind of taught that, that yeah. actually we are distant and the, the client's mm. really got all their own answers and mm. we're just there as mm-hmm. a conduit for them to mm-hmm. help them reach the surface. Yeah. But I'd argue when you're working with young people. You've got to be. Absolutely not. It does not work. <laughs> no. Not, you've got to engage with mm. them and you've got to be warm and you've got to be genuine and authentic yeah. and they've got to be because they'll see right through you. Oh, in a my God, they will. They'll they, tell you apart. You've got to be the same person that they're going to bump into if they see yeah. you in the supermarket. Yeah. It's, and it's, you know, fundamentally important. Mm. So I kind of like that you've made that distinction because mm. that really is something mm. that maybe young people should be looking for when they're out yeah. there is that. That connection it's not actually about how good the therapist is no. and, and most therapists are good in their sure. in their realm yeah. for the right fit of client mm. but the one that they can walk in and they go mm. actually I know if I bump into you walking mm. down the street you're going to be yeah. exactly the same and I think I know self-disclosure is a very touchy thing in the therapist world but a little bit like so my therapist because we were on telehealth his cat walked past and he goes oh that's my cat Luna I was like oh, I've got a cat named Luna and I was and instant that rapport and that connection and we actually named our cat from sailor moon like we both and i was like this is fate this is it and 
That was so powerful for me. I'm hoping research in times to come yes. actually tells us that a little bit of self-disclosure yeah. is incredibly connecting. I, I agree with you. Mm. Just to feel like the other person's a human being as well. Oh, my gosh. Not right? someone who's sitting there with the clipboard. And yeah, textbook. Absolutely <laughs> right. So, it, you know, you're really young but it's, it's a big mm. story. Mm. In all of your story, mm-hmm. what do you think has made the most impact in terms of you coming out of that darkness mm. into where you are now? I really think I trusted my gut that therapy was going to be the right thing for me because okay. I actually don't think that I would have gotten this far without it. And I just had this faith that, like, s- someone's going to get it. Someone's gonna, like, one of these days I'm going to have a therapist and they're going to get it and it's going to make so much sense. So you had hope. Yeah. You never lost hope that someone mm. would get you mm. at yeah. some point. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself through these years? Super resilient. Oh, my God. I didn't even know what I was made out of. (laughs) And that the pain and those experiences aren't shameful. So one thing, so I work with a lot of varying clients and they'll tell me all these things and they'll be like, you don't know how I feel. I'm like, I don't. But I still experience though. Fun fact, I have complex PTSD and depression. And then they go, oh, my God, you get it. And I think having those experiences allows me to be a real person in my life, but also in my work and my purpose and my meaning as a human on this floating rock (laughs) as well. It's a pretty special thing, isn't it? I think when you've been through really difficult circumstances to go, actually, Mm. I can see why that has helped me be Mm -hmm. where I am now. Yeah. Even though it was incredibly difficult to Mm. live through that, you know, I'm not saying that we I'm glad it happened by any yeah. stretch, but that I can weave it into my mm. life now and go, well, I wouldn't be here yeah. if I hadn't taken the learnings out mm. of it, which, I, you know, I think there's, there's always that richness that's mm. on the other side. It's getting over yeah. to the other side. I think it was about, well, if I've been through all this pain, because the reason why I decided to be a therapist was that, that school therapist, she, as much as she fucked me up, yep. she gave me all these things of what not to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> Did she really? Okay, what was that? Yeah, well, it was just the coldness. It was this, you're a child. I'm going to talk to you like a child. Like, you don't know anything. And I knew a lot about my own life. Maybe not about the world, but, you know, about my own life and my own experience. Of course and you do. It was like, I don't want anyone to ever have to have such a bad therapist like that. I'm going to be one of the good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm here and I'm listening yeah. to your story because yeah. actually you're the expert, and not me. I'm curious. I want to know because how could I possibly know? How could I possibly assume that you, I know? You couldn't. No. What would you tell your 16-year-old self now, mm. now that you're 26 and where you're at, where life is really yeah. quite stable and you've yeah. carved out a great path and and Mm. have goals which were never in existence back then, Mm. what would you tell her? I think I would tell her just to trust her intuition. She always knew that things weren't always going to be this way and to not lose that hope. So I don't think I would have gotten to where I am without that. If I didn't dream of a different life or a different outcome or a different anything, you know, I think that hope really kind of guided me to where I am now. And even though you're in that depths of that darkness, you do get out. It feels impossible. <laughs> it feels inconceivable at that time. But things do change because you change. That's that's the best line. 
in our discussion for us to send out there into the world, Mm. which is absolutely right. Things can change Mm. and things do change Mm. and things get better, even though it feels inconceivable when you're in the pits of despair. Mm. I am so grateful for you sharing your story. Thank you so much because you've come a long way to do this and and you're sitting here opposite me. So it's wonderful to get to know you. And you know what? I think your clients, current and future, are going to be very, very lucky to have you in their corner. So thank thank you you so much. I really appreciate it. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Mind Rewind. Subscribe for free for future episodes. And if you're interested in sharing your own journey, please contact us at beamstalkconsulting.com.au. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14.